welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. We will discuss his book, Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government, which is published by Encounter Books. So welcome back to the show, Clark. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this one because I think it's really uh, timely and important and speaks to a lot of questions that I think, thankfully, are increasingly in in the air. Um, but by way of kind of launching off the conversation, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what sort of people in general expect judges to do when they're confronted with constitutional questions as as opposed to what maybe judges actually do. Yeah, well, I think my sense is that most people expect judges in constitutional cases to make a good faith effort to determine what the applicable law requires in that particular setting, and then also make a good faith effort to apply that law to the particular facts of the case in order to reach a conclusion about whether the government conduct at issue does or does not violate the Constitution. And the basic thrust of the book is that that happens in some cases, but not all cases. And then in fact, the default setting, the default legal framework that judges apply to decide constitutional cases, in fact, requires them to not make a good faith effort to apply the relevant constitutional law to the facts of the case, uh, which I refer to in the book as judicial abdication or sometimes as fake judging. And there's actually a great deal of it in the system. Well, so so how do we know what the Constitution actually protects? I mean, is it just the things that are spelled out in the document itself or is there something more than that? No, I don't think there are very many people who believe that the Constitution only protects those rights that are specifically spelled out or enumerated in the text. Uh, that's a, a an extraordinarily idiosyncratic reading of the Constitution. It's not one the Supreme Court has ever adopted. And it's very difficult to reconcile with the explicit language of the Ninth Amendment, which states that the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others held by the people. So uh, the court has consistently, although I would say not sufficiently, um, identified and protected a number of unenumerated rights, ranging all the way from the right to get married, to have children and decide how to raise your children, to things like the ability to travel around without government permission, um, and uh, a variety of other uh, rights that are not enumerated in the text of the Constitution. Now, uh, as I suggested a moment ago, I think the court is extraordinarily um, limited in uh, the the number of unenumerated rights that it protects and makes it very difficult, very difficult uh, for people to to essentially persuade the courts to protect some new right that the courts have not yet uh, protected. But the basic point that you don't have to identify a specific textual protection in the Constitution um, in order to at least be able to discuss whether a given right should be protected is largely uncontroversial. Well, so you suggested earlier that while we recognize a range of different rights that are constitutional rights, they don't all necessarily get treated the same way by courts. 
sort of how do courts treat constitutional rights differently and how do they go about deciding which rights get which kinds of treatment? In broad brushstokes, the Supreme Court divides your constitutional rights into two categories. The court uses the term fundamental rights and non-fundamental rights. Another way to describe the, the dichotomy would be important rights and unimportant rights. And the reason why I characterize the latter category as unimportant not because I think those rights are unimportant, but because the Supreme Court has made clear that it doesn't think those rights are important because it assigns uh, as the relevant legal framework something called the rational basis test, which as I explain in the book is a charade and a fraud. It is simply the courts going through the motions of judicial review without providing any of the substance. This rational basis test is the only protection that you're that your non-fundamental, or as I sometimes call them, unimportant constitutional rights receive, which is in effect no protection whatsoever. So to summarize, the Supreme Court believes that some of your rights are very important and will receive a robust level of judicial protection, but that most of your rights are unimportant, or as the court says, non-fundamental, and receives nothing more than the charade of rational basis review. Well, so in the book, you you kind of argue that where the rubber hits, hits the road, as it were, in constitutional judging is actually sorting rights into the fundamental, non-fundamental, important, unimportant category. So if that's so important in determining the outcomes, how do we know whether rights are fundamental or non-fundamental, important or unimportant? So how do courts figure it out? Well, it's a bit like asking whether uh, Spider-Man could beat the Hulk in a fight. Um, uh, the, the most important point to make is that it's a completely nonsensical distinction. Um, of course, your, your rights do not fall into two discrete categories, important and unimportant. Uh, but the Supreme Court, as a matter of legal doctrine, has said so. And so there does have to be a way uh, of distinguishing your fundamental versus non-fundamental rights. Um, and essentially what the court has done is employ a number of uh, tests over the years. Uh, but the gist of it is that the court will look to uh, history uh, to see whether the particular right that's being asserted um, is one that has been historically protected by the courts um, and is fundamental uh, to uh, sort of the, uh, to a sense of ordered liberty, whatever that means. I find it kind of circular myself. Um, but basically, it's a kind of a uh, um, a gut check. It's not much more than that. There's a little bit of history that they do. Um, but that's essentially the test uh, that the courts will use to see whether or not to or, or whether to characterize a given right as fundamental or non-fundamental if it has not already done so. Generally speaking, although not always, rights that are enumerated or listed in the text of the Constitution will receive fundamental status. And generally, although not always, rights that are not enumerated in the text of the Constitution will be considered non-fundamental. But there are some exceptions on both sides, as I suggested. Well, so maybe you could give some examples of kinds of rights that have court have kind of placed in the fundamental category, as opposed to rights that the court has placed in the non-fundamental category. Because it seems to me that essentially... Once you've decided what category to put the right into, it really kind of determines whether or not you can actually enforce that right against the government. That's basically right. Um, certainly, you can go into court and attempt to vindicate a given right, but whether or not you will be successful in doing so depends almost entirely upon whether that right is put in the fundamental bucket or the non 
fundamental bucket. Um, rights that go in the fundamental bucket are ones that people are pretty familiar with, I imagine. The right of free expression is considered to be fundamental. The right to the free exercise of religion is considered to be fundamental, as are a small handful of unenumerated rights. The right to marry, for example, is considered to be fundamental. So fundamental, in fact, that there's even a case where the court protected the ability of a prison inmate to be to get married while he was serving his sentence. Um, so those are uh, some examples of rights that the courts consider to be fundamental and will therefore receive significant, robust judicial protection. Among the rights that the courts consider to be non-fundamental include things like um, the right to own property, um, a home or or a car or some other piece of property is considered to be non-fundamental. The right to earn a living in the occupation of your choice is considered to be a non-fundamental right, not entitled to any meaningful judicial protection. And believe it or not, um, this is even more relevant today than, than in past years. Um, the right to have access to potentially life-saving drugs has been held by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to be a non-fundamental right entitled only to rational basis protection. Um, which is frankly a bit of a misnomer, uh, rational basis review. The Supreme Court has not yet weighed in on that question itself, uh, but that is, I would say, a rather breathtaking application of this fundamental versus non-fundamental um, dichotomy for, a, for, for the second most important court in the country to hold that even if you are a terminally ill cancer patient, which was um, what the plaintiffs in, in this case that I'm talking about uh, had in common, there is no fundamental right of access to a drug that has not yet been approved by the FDA, but that your doctor thinks might save your life. So it gives you a, some some sense of just how much work this um, fundamental versus non-fundamental dichotomy does and how much of a problem it is for you if the right you are trying to vindicate in court ends up on the non-fundamental side of that divide. Well, so maybe you could walk us through how this works in practice. So imagine that a plaintiff asserts a fundamental right. Like what happens? What does the court do? What does the plaintiff have to show? As opposed to if a plaintiff is asserting a non-fundamental right, what happens in those circumstances? Yeah. So let's take a relatable example um, in our times. Imagine that um, uh, somebody comes up with a medication uh, that uh, they they contend or, or some kind of a treatment that they contend, you know, helps with, uh, with COVID symptoms. Um, the um, uh, now imagine that they're allowed to sell this, whatever it is. Let's put aside FDA approval and so forth. But they're allowed to sell the item. If the government attempts to restrict how they describe it, in terms of the things that it can do or who should take it, etc., um, that will be considered a restriction of speech, probably a restriction of commercial speech, which the courts hold uh, to a sort of lower standard or give the government more leeway, but still considered to be a fundamental right. And what you'll get um, is a a kind of judging um, that I describe in the book as real judging or genuine. Um, the courts use the term heightened scrutiny in this in this setting, but that's really just a euphemism for actual scrutiny. And the hallmark of any form of heightened scrutiny, uh, including the kind of intermediate scrutiny that commercial speech gets, is that it's not enough for the government to simply assert that there's some concern here. They actually have to show that there is. They actually have to come into court and prove with evidence that there is something to be concerned about. And then they have to show, again, with evidence that the restriction that they have imposed, the limitation on speech in this case, actually materially advances whatever government end they're trying to advance, in this case, presumably public health. And um, the last thing that the government has to show is that there was not some less restrictive 
means available to them. In other words, maybe they could have made you put a warning or a disclosure uh, on your on the label of your product instead of just preventing you from making certain representations. And if the government cannot show that there is um, no less restrictive means available to it, um, then they will lose the case. What all of these points have in common is first that the government has to back up whatever representations it makes in court about its concerns. It has to identify actual concerns and not just sort of ad hoc um, or hypothetical concerns. And then it has to support whatever it says in court uh, with evidence. And the burden at every step will be upon the government to demonstrate that the concerns it has recited are real uh, and that the solution it proposes will, in fact, um, uh, advance the ball. Now imagine that instead the government proposes to simply make it illegal to sell this product at all. The Supreme Court, in its infinite wisdom, considers it much more important to be able to advertise a given product than to be able to actually sell the product. So your ability to advertise gets uh, heightened scrutiny, meaningful review. Your ability to sell the product, however, uh, is considered a non-fundamental right. Therefore, all you get is rational basis review. And the rational basis test, as I said a moment ago, is a fraud and a charade. It's not really a test of any kind. All the government has to do in a rational basis case is assert that it has some conceivable concern that it's trying to address. It doesn't have to be true. There doesn't have to be any evidence that supports it. In fact, it can even be demonstrably false. But as long as it's conceivable, then the government can assert it. Um, and the government doesn't have to show that the, the restriction it's, it's in, uh, imposing will do anything to uh, fix the problem. It doesn't have to prove that with evidence. It just has to, again, assert that it might do some good. And the um, perhaps one of the strangest things about the rational basis test is that courts have actually interpreted it as requiring the judiciary to get involved. Um, there are a number of circuit courts that have explicitly held that in, in assessing the constitutionality of a law under the rational basis test, they don't just rely on whatever representations the government made in court. They themselves, the judges, have an obligation to get involved and try to come up with potential justifications uh, for the law, which really puts them in the role of an advocate more than a decider or a, an adjudicator. Um, but these are all the hallmarks of the rational basis test, and that's why I refer to it as a charade and a fraud, because it actually isn't a test. It doesn't look anything like actual judging, as we have come to know it. And it really is just a way for the judiciary to rubber stamp whatever the government wants to do while providing the simulacra of judicial review with none of the substance. Well, but Clark, I mean, people could disagree about what's a good reason or a bad reason for making a kind of governmental or regulatory decision, right? I mean, just how far did this really go, right? I mean, as long as it's sort of like conceivable or kind of possible, shouldn't that be enough? Like what kinds of rationales would suffice under the rational ra rational basis test? Well, I can give you an example from firsthand experience. Um, I used to challenge occupational licensing regulations when I was an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Uh, and one of the craziest ones that we ever challenged was a law in Louisiana that requires anybody who wants to sell floral arrangements to get a government license, just like a doctor or a lawyer. So in other words, in Louisiana, if you take two flowers and put them together in an aesthetically appealing manner, that's a floral arrangement. And it is illegal for you to try to sell that without being a licensed florist, a state licensed florist. One of the justifications that the state advanced in court when we challenged that law was that a conceivable explanation or a conceivable justification for the law was to protect consumers from the physical dangers of unlicensed floristry, which might include things like infected dirt, a misplaced corsage pin, 
um, or a loose wire. Some floral arrangements are held together at the stems by wire. And they advanced all of these uh, as possible justifications for the law. And of course, all of them are patently absurd. There are no physical uh, dangers to unlicensed floristry. But nevertheless, the district court upheld the law and cited uh, as part of its rationale uh, that it was conceivable asserted that it was conceivable that the state of Louisiana might be trying to protect people from the physical dangers of unlicensed floristry. So that would be an example uh, of a, uh, a rather vivid example of the, gore, of, the, of the government going into court, asserting things that are patently false, uh, but according to at least some people's lights, conceivable, and a law being upheld uh, whose obvious true justification, the true reason for the existence of, of Louisiana's florist licensing law has nothing to do with protecting consumers and everything to do with protecting licensed florists from competition. Uh, but under rational basis review, uh, at least to some, according to some people's conception of it, including mine, um, the, the judiciary has been told, don't look, don't try to figure out what's really going on. Um, simply ask yourself whether the state's asserted justifications are conceivable, even if they are patently false. And if they are conceivable, then you must uphold the law. So that's um, that's the rational basis test in a nutshell. Well, see, that seems bonkers, right? I mean, how did we get there? How did we get to a place where we would say that, you know, this is a constitutional right, but we're only going to pretend to enforce it? I mean, if you can't enforce a right, it's not a real right in the first place. What happened? Well, I think the Supreme Court thought at a certain point that it was doing something very clever when, in fact, it was doing something very stupid. Um, what I think the court thought it was doing that was very clever was kind of finessing the question of whether certain rights are or are not uh, protected. So what the court would say would be something like, well, I mean, of course you have a right to earn a living subject only to reasonable government regulation, which, by the way, the court has been saying for more than 100 years. Um, but the court is ambivalent about the status of that right. Perhaps they're not entirely sure whether the Constitution, in fact, protects that right. And they're very disinclined to get into the kind of endless uh, conflicts that they would get um, if they applied a meaningful standard of review. Because I can tell you from firsthand experience, um, in many areas, including definitely things like occupational licensing business regulation, taxation, and so forth. So much of what legislatures do is not remotely related to advancing the public interest, but is instead nakedly about advancing the private interests of industry insiders, people with better lobbyists, cartels, etc. That if the judiciary were to take an honest look at every business regulation, every occupational licensing regulation, every taxing scheme, um, they would almost certainly find that a significant number of those uh, were passed uh, and, and are being enforced for no truly public spirited reason. And so I think the, 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 the Supreme Court wanted to try to figure out a way to avoid uh, getting itself into those conflicts, but without denying that, for example, Americans have a right to work in the occupation of their choice free from unreasonable government interference. And so I tried to finesse all of this, I think, by coming up with this standard, the rational basis test, where it can say on the one hand, oh, you know, sure, you have a right to be, you know, taxed reasonably or to be uh, regulated reasonably, um, but then turn around and apply a test that enables it to find in virtually every setting that the government acted reasonably and only strike down a very, very small handful of laws where what the government is doing is so patently offensive um, and or irrational that there's not really going to be a lot 
uh, a blowback from that particular case and not really any blowback as long as the court just does that once in a great while, by which I mean strike something down under the rational basis test once in a great while and rubber stamp uh, the, mat, the, the vast majority of cases that come before it, which is precisely what the courts do. Well, so why can't we just rely on the democratic process to solve this problem? I mean, after all, people elect representatives who go out and make the laws. I mean, shouldn't the democratic process be enough to prevent these kinds of bad unconstitutional laws in the first place? And wouldn't it hurt the democratic legitimacy of the courts to go around overturning democratically enacted laws? willy-nilly just because they think it's a bad idea? No, and I think only really foolish and unsophisticated people think that the democratic majority, uh, democratic process can be relied upon to protect people in this country. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Some people may be familiar with one of the Supreme Court's uh, most ghastly decisions, uh, uh, Buck v. Bell from 1927. Um, This is the case involving eugenic sterilization, uh, which was a policy that um, uh, solid democratic majorities of Americans were very enthusiastic about um, in the late 19th and early to mid 20th century. Um, At one point, more than half of the states in America had eugenic sterilization laws on the books. The the, the plaintiff in this case, Carrie Buck, was only 19 years old at the time when Virginia came to sterilize her for being, quote, socially inadequate the voting age in Virginia at that time was 21. So telling Carrie Buck that her only recourse if the state wants to come and pull out her reproductive organs and render her sterile for the rest of her life is the ballot box, that's not going to work out for her. And it's not going to work out for vast numbers of either formally or effectively disenfranchised Americans. So that's point one. Point two, which is a little bit more sophisticated, is that there's a school of economics called public choice economics, uh, which has won a number of Nobel Prizes and is increasingly, uh, I would say, accepted uh, and really almost becoming sort of conventional wisdom in the sense that it describes the way that government actors actually act, the reasons why they act, what are their true motivations. And what it did was it essentially displaced this sort of old-fashioned school of thought that that held that government actors reliably act in public-spirited ways. Um, and what public choice economics teaches is that, in fact, government actors are just like the rest of us. They act primarily from self-interest. Uh, in the case of elected officials, that means getting reelected. In the case of bureaucrats and people who run government agencies, it means preserving and perhaps increasing their budget along with their regulatory fiefdom. Uh, and that these are the motivations that, in fact, sort of actuate uh, the behavior of legislators uh, and bureaucrats. Uh, and they're not out there sort of trying to ascertain and advance the majority will. And oftentimes the majority will is a very ugly thing. Um, eugenics wasn't the, the only thing this country's ever done. It was one of the worst, but we've done a lot of other things, um, had a lot of other horribly immoral policies driven by solid democratic majorities. So the whole idea of a constitution is that it limits the ability of democratic majorities um, to impose their will uh, on political minorities. Uh, and if you go back in time and you, you were sort of looked at the Federalist Papers and the writings, the other writings of the founders, you would discover that they consider that to be one of the most important things that the Constitution does. It divides power on purpose. It puts lots of hoops and hurdles in the way of the legislative process on purpose. It carves out and identifies rights that must be protected on purpose. So the whole Constitution, or virtually the whole Constitution, is in a sense um, a very deliberate effort to 
to push back against and to um, ameliorate the often horrendous effects of majoritarian politics. To the extent we're concerned at all about the kind of democratic legitimacy of judicial decision-making, do we have a sense at all about how the sort of way the Supreme Court and the lower courts have thought about fundamental versus non-fundamental rights tracks against sort of the perceptions of the general public in relation to those same concepts? In other words, insofar as the courts are making these kinds of decisions, are the decisions they're making consistent with the way that actual democratic majorities think about the same values? So two points. Um, first, I'm not sure. I think the court sometimes, you know, uh, tracks to to greater and lesser degrees um, majority perceptions. Sometimes the court thwarts majorities um, under circumstances where I think we should be very proud of the court for doing so. Um, the Brown v. Board of Education decision comes to mind. Um, my sense is that that was did not reflect um, sort of majority view that that schools must be desegregated, certainly not in certain parts of the country. And the court, nevertheless, unanimously stood four square uh, for that premise. Uh, other times, the court does seem to uh, track uh, public opinion. Um, it arguably did that with the same-sex marriage case, Obergefell. Um, I think by that time, there was a majority of people in this country that, that supported that institution. Um, but perhaps most importantly, um, the, maybe the point to make is this. That's not the job of the court. Um, certainly, the, it's necessary for the court to maintain its institutional legitimacy. Um, but the, the judiciary uh, consistently weighs in as sort of the branch that people seem to have the most respect for, um, which is not to say that the, the, uh, the judges should be cavalier and assume that that will always be the case. Um, but they have significant, the judiciary has significant uh, institutional capital. And the job of the judiciary, of course, is to do its best to interpret the Constitution and enforce it as written. Um, and sometimes that will be uh, very popular with people and other times it won't be so popular. Um, but um, as long as the court is not um, seriously endangering uh, its institutional legitimacy in the way that it rules, uh, then I really, I personally don't believe that the court should um, be making an effort to sort of, you know, keep its finger on the pulse of public opinion and avoid straying uh, too far from it. Now, um, again, I think that it's important, you know, for the court to be perceived as as legitimate. But some of the courts, uh, Supreme Court's uh, most shining moments have been in cases where they have gone against public opinion and vindicated individual rights. I've already mentioned uh, the Brown v. Board of Education case. There were the flag salute cases where courts struck down laws that required children uh, to recite the Pledge of Allegiance and or uh, salute flags. Um, I'm fairly confident that the court went against the majority um, in those cases. And also the, uh, the, the flag burning case, Texas v. Johnson, um, the Supreme Court upheld the right of people um, who want to express themselves by burning an American flag to do so, even though that too went against majority opinion. So it's not always um, the most important, or it's, 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 it's not really ever the most important question, uh, whether the court is tracking public opinion. Um, that's really not what the Constitution was intended to do. Well, I was struck by the example that you present in the book of eminent domain and the Kilo v. New London case, where the Supreme Court, at least in my understanding, sort of purported to be issuing a ruling in favor of the kind of democratic legitimacy of local decision making. And yet it seems like the outcome of that case is um, 
really counter to the way a lot of people kind of popularly think about what the Constitution does, does and says. And, and I wonder about that and also about kind of people's perceptions in relation to some of the occupational licensing cases you discuss as well. Yeah, well, I think there's no accident that Kilo versus City of New London um, is among the most reviled decisions in the Supreme Court's history, and certainly in, in modern times. Um, that was a case involving a question of um, whether the public use provision of the Fifth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment says that the government may only take private property um, for public use with just compensation. At issue in the Kilo case, um, which I helped work on, was whether um, the, the requirement that the government only take property for a truly public use extended to um, taking a bunch of homes in a middle to lower class working neighborhood uh, or working class neighborhood in New London, Connecticut, and effectively turning them over um, to a development company to create a yuppieville to replace the rather modest homes in the neighborhood with high-end townhouses to build a four-star hotel and some high-end office space. And the only justification that the government gave in that in that case was that it might increase the tax base and create some new jobs. Um, the problem, of course, is that if that constitutes a public use, there is no property in this country that is safe. No, no piece of private property um, couldn't make more revenue by re being repurposed for something else. Um, and in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court held that the government can take your property and bulldoze it just to just to turn it over to a developer to build a nicer piece of property, build a nicer home, or to, to put up a shopping mall. I think what the court and the justices, the five justices in the, in the majority, um, failed to appreciate uh, was that um, that is the kind of thing that really could happen to anybody. Uh, and the idea that your home uh, could be taken away from you and bulldozed and replaced, you know, with a nicer house just because it would be, you know, bring in more tax revenue. Um, is quite shocking to many Americans. And they don't want to be at the whim um, of Democratic majorities in making that decision. And I will tell you, um, as Justice O'Connor predicted accurately, the effects of that decision um, are not felt equally by all communities. Um, one of the next cases to arrive was a bunch of people who had nice little bungalows on the Jersey Shore that back in when they built those homes, that was considered to be you know 30 or 40 miles away from New York City, was considered to be quite a long ways. Um, but suddenly those properties looked way more desirable um, and developers came in and wanted to put condominiums there, except these people didn't want to sell. So that's the kind of example um, of who ends up on the chopping block um, is people without a great deal of political influence um, who are fortunate enough to acquire property in a, what has become a desirable uh, place. So um, that's that's city of uh, New London versus Kilo. Again, one of the most reviled decisions in Supreme Court history, um, about 85 or 90% of people when polled uh, expressed opposition to the opinion. I think maybe the Supreme Court, to some extent, regrets it. And I suspect if that case came before the Supreme Court again today, uh, the result would be different. Um, you also asked about occupational licensing, which was my specialty at the Institute for Justice. Um, you know, it's it's amazing to me. I when you when you think of the way that the Supreme Court has defined what a fundamental right is, you know, a right that um, is is historically. Uh, significant and fundamental to the concept of ordered liberty and so forth. It's actually kind of hard for me to think of a right that is more fundamental than the ability to put food on your family's table through honest work. And that's what we're talking about here. We're simply talking about the ability to work in an occupation subject only to truly reasonable government regulation. An example would be to say, if you want to charge somebody money for performing surgery on them, it's reasonable for the government to say, okay, well, you need to show that you actually know how to do surgery. 
But at the other end of the spectrum, the idea that you should not be permitted to sell a floral arrangement without demonstrating to the government that you have you know, a certain baseline level of skill is preposterous. Um, and in fact, uh, our client in that case, a woman named Sandy Meadows, was a widow whose only vocational skill was floral arranging. She was actually quite good at it, but she just couldn't pass the test because the test that Louisiana would administer is so deliberately rigged um, against sort of outsiders um, that this woman, Sandy Meadows, whose only vocational skill in the world was selling floral arrangements, was forbidden by the state from, from supporting herself by selling floral arrangements. And she actually died uh, alone, unemployed, and in poverty in the middle of that lawsuit uh, because she had been hounded out of the floral industry, couldn't find another job, um, and we couldn't get a judge to strike down the law uh, in time for her to go back to work. So um, these seemingly perhaps pedestrian um, or even absurd cases actually have extraordinarily great significance for some of the individuals involved. And it's easy for people to forget that. I hope they don't. Well, so, so Clark, I mean, isn't the idea of judges sort of aggressively reviewing the constitutionality of government laws and regulations a kind of judicial activism? Is that something that people should be concerned about? Well, <clears throat> perhaps genuine judicial activism, which was in, which is when a court nakedly uh, substitutes its own policy preferences for the law. But that's really not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an active judiciary, not activist. And the whole argument in the book really boils down to this. Um, it's much less about what the Constitution does or doesn't say. That's an issue of constitutional theory. Um, and there are some really great constitutional theorists out there, including Randy Barnett, who's probably the leading libertarian constitutional theorist. But what this book is really talking about is whether it's appropriate to have a constitutional jurisprudence where judges make a genuine effort to ascertain what the government is really up to in some cases, but then don't make a genuine effort whatsoever in other cases. And let me give you a quick illustration. I use this one in the book. Um, imagine that uh, police come into a certain neighborhood and simply order everybody to stay inside until further notice. There's no law that purports to authorize this. They're not enforcing a court order. They're just doing it on their own authority, ordering people to stay inside until further notice. Ask yourself whether or not that order is constitutional or not. And it's a bit of a trick question because, in fact, you cannot answer the question unless you know why the order was given. If we're talking about Birmingham, Alabama in the early 1960s and there's an election tomorrow and the police are going through certain neighborhoods, making sure that certain people can't get to the polls because they're shut up inside their houses, then that order is rather blatantly unconstitutional. It's a direct effort to interfere in the ability of those people to vote by violating the Fourth Amendment and seizing them illegally and holding them inside their houses, not even a close call. But if, on the other hand, we're talking about Boston, Massachusetts in April of 2013, and those police officers are in hot pursuit of two terrorists who set off a bomb at the Boston Marathon which is exactly what was going on, then to a high degree of certainty, that order is lawful. It is constitutional and it will not be struck down. And it's the exact same act on the part of the government, ordering people to stay inside until further notice. And if you do not ask why it was done, if you do not ask genuinely and honestly what ends the government is pursuing, then you cannot answer the question of whether the order itself was constitutional or unconstitutional. And that's the entire argument in the book, is that there's real judging, which is where you really try to get to the bottom of what's going on to figure out what the government is actually doing. And then there's fake judging, where you simply rubber stamp whatever the government is doing by rationalizing a justification that may or may not have any grounding in reality. 
And the entire objection in the book is to a system where uh, the idea that you can either get real judging, which I just described, or fake judging, which is rational basis review, simply comes down to this more or less intuitive or gut level decision on the part of judges about whether the right at issue is fundamental or non-fundamental. There are no non-fundamental rights. There are no unimportant rights. There are no rights that should simply get this kind of rubber stamp, uh, fraud and a charade uh, basis of judicial review where the court kind of winks at the government and just rubber stamps and upholds whatever it's doing. Every single constitutional challenge is entitled to genuine judicial review where the court makes a genuine effort to figure out what's really going on and what ends the government is actually pursuing to assess whether those ends are constitutional or unconstitutional. And it's no more complicated than that. Well, so Clark, in closing, I wonder if you could just talk briefly, maybe especially for kind of law students and lawyers, about how you would propose that courts and judges change the way that they do constitutional decision-making. I mean, it sounds to me like what you're proposing is getting rid of the rational basis test entirely. Is there more about the kind of constitutional doctrinal sort of superstructure that you think we ought to revise as well? So I think it would actually be revolutionary uh, to get rid of the rational basis test. The rational basis test is, in fact, the default setting in constitutional law. It's the standard of review that you will receive unless you can persuade the court that it's dealing with one of these small handful of fundamental rights or um, it's it's discriminating on the basis of some invidious uh, quality. If you can't persuade the court that one of those two things is going on, um, then your challenge will get rational basis review, which is to say no meaningful review. So it would really be quite an extraordinary thing um, to eliminate the rational basis test and have all constitutional cases receive some form of real judging. The rational basis test, by the way, has also crept into other areas of law, such as federalism, the question of what powers the federal government does and does not have legitimately to wield. It's crept into, into criminal law. Does the government need a good reason to put you in a cage? No, it does not. If you just happen to prefer the wrong, not particularly harmful plant and you grow it in your backyard, they can put you in a cage, even if that plant's not doing anybody any harm. Um, So the pernicious effects of the rational basis test would be impossible to overstate in our system. And therefore, the elimination of the rational basis test and the requirement that all constitutional challenges receive some form of genuine judicial scrutiny uh, would work an extraordinary change um, in current constitutional doctrine. And I don't think it's really necessary to propose any more than that. There may be other things that we would want to do if we ever got to that point, um, but just simply requiring real judging in all cases uh, would be so momentous and it would change so much of what current constitutional doctrine would look like that I would suggest we just start with that and then reassess if we ever get there. Amazing. Well, Clark, thanks so much for coming on the show uh, for a second time. It was great talking to you, as always. Uh, The book was great and a quick read, and I highly recommend it to listeners, um, if only to check out uh, your example of Rational Basis Dad, which I found quite amusing. (laughs) 
<laughs> I appreciate that. I get a lot of good feedback on rational basis, Dad, and maybe we can just canalize the listener with that uh, that story. But yeah, it's in chapter three. Feel free to turn to turn to that part of it. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really um, appreciate the opportunity to share with people that um, there's um, a very interesting sort of dynamic going on um, in constitutional adjudication that I wish more people knew about. Uh, and I think this is one of those things where just to get the word out is a huge step in the direction of, of uh, meaningful reform. Florist for the rest. 